Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now, here's the question. How is Michael Wood still a cabinet minister? It seemed like just about every hour yesterday he was found to have told a porky to someone at some stage in the last three years. If it wasn't the media, it was the cabinet office or the prime minister's office or the former prime minister herself. I mean, how much longer can not only Michael Wood, but also the Prime Minister, have the confidence of the public? Maybe Chris Hepkins has just given up. And then to cap it all off, Michael Wood finally announces that he has sold the shares at Auckland Airport for $16,000 and given the proceeds to charity. I mean, what did he do that for? It's nice of him to forego a nice little capital gain, although it took 25 years for it to be realised. Was he trying to get us to think that he's a nice, kind and caring socialist cabinet minister who should be forgiven for not cashing in on the dirty fruits of capitalism? I mean, it's just nonsense thinking, isn't it? Does he think we came down on the last shower? I just find it incomprehensible that he has told untruths, porkies, fibs, lies, call them what you want, to our reporter and to the Cabinet Office and, in effect, to the former Prime Minister. He cannot be trusted, but he is the main man in the Labour Party trade union relationship and the unions are the main funders of the Labour Party. Labour Party leadership does not want to upset that apple cart. So Michael Wood keeps his Cabinet Minister's job. It's just not in transport. It's a pretty small price to pay for some pretty bad activity. Now, hardly anybody sends a letter these days, of course, not unless you're a great-grandparent sending a birthday card or an old-fashioned sort of person who still sends out the Christmas cards. The only thing I think I get in my letterbox these days is the paper and an occasional bank statement, which I've tried to have stopped, but the bank keeps on sending them. Uh, There's also uh, the occasional speeding ticket from the Marion Square Post Office Box number in Wellington. That's Police National Headquarters. You know you've been um, nabbed when one of those envelopes shows up. So it's hardly surprising that New Zealand Post is putting up the prices for postage because now it seems the only part of the company to make a profit is parcel delivery. Kiwi Bank used to as well, but that's all sold off to the government now. In the last financial year, mail, as in letters, was down $45 million in turnover with a 13% decrease in volume. Parcels were up $137 million or 8 million units. There were still 238 million letters delivered and the SOE made a profit of 102 million, although that's going to drop this year with the sale of the bank. But the price of a letter is up to $2 as from the 1st of July from $1.70. But it went up from $1.50 on July the 1st last year. So that's up 25% in two years, well above inflation. And New Zealand Post is fighting a losing battle against the decrease in volume. 
I think the time has come, frankly, for New Zealand Post to accept that they're a parcel delivery business and the letters, frankly, just go along for the ride and that division is cross-subsidised by the parcels. $2, it seems, is a nice, round, even number for a letter. Let's just leave it there for a little while, eh? You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Gee, poor old Chris Luxon cannot pull a trick, can he? He made a perfectly acceptable, logical and important statement yesterday and immediately he's subject to a lefty pile on about women's choices and how the planet doesn't need any more people. Which is a nonsense, of course. What is the greatest thing about this world? It is the people. We are the most advanced form of life ever known and we need to be replaced because we all expire eventually. In New Zealand, though, we are not replacing ourselves and we haven't for some time. In fact, it's nearly a decade since we stopped replacing ourselves. The birth rate per woman needs to be at least 2.1 to keep the population intact naturally. In New Zealand, the birth rate is about 1.6 and it's not increasing. 60 years ago... It was about four per woman. Then the contraceptive pill arrived in early 1965 and things have never been the same since. The question is, do we want to keep a New Zealand of New Zealand-born New Zealanders going or do we want to become a nation of first-generation immigrants again? I'm for keeping as many native-born New Zealanders as we can in this country. I did my bit between, what, 40 and 45 years ago. My kids have done the same. So my views are biased. I understand choices people make, but I still reckon Christopher Luxon was right. We do need more babies born in this country. Otherwise, the New Zealand of the mid-21st century will be a very different place to the one that we know now. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now there's a pharmacy chain in Australia called Terry White Chem Mart. It's actually owned by the New Zealand company EBOS. You might have heard of them. They're on the stock exchange, the largest marketer, wholesaler and distributor of healthcare, medical and pharmaceutical products across Australia and New Zealand. A couple of days ago on their website, Terry White Chem Mart were offering advice about whooping cough and about getting the vaccine for it. And this is what the advertisement said, quote, The birthing parent is the most important person in the family to be vaccinated. Now, this was noticed by Rachel Wong, who's the New Zealand lawyer and head of the Women's Forum Australia. She posted this advertisement on LinkedIn, asking why Australia's largest pharmacy chain is trying to erase women and mothers. A very good question. Yesterday, the same advertisement appeared online again, but the copy had changed. Now it said, quote, getting vaccinated helps protect the mother from whooping cough, which reduces the risk of passing it to the baby, unquote. So Rachel Wong has posted this as a win for women and mothers, and she's absolutely correct. Although, as she says, maybe Terry White Kim Mart feared a backlash like Bud Light and Target have had in the US with their rather unwise transgender advertising 
and their transgender products. The world needs more women like Rachel Wong, I tell you. But thank you also, Terry White Kemmart. You got it right, eventually. Gee, David Seymour cut to the chase last weekend at his party's conference, didn't he? He asked that if you closed down a certain government department or ministry, would anybody be any worse off apart from those people who work there, who don't get their fortnightly paycheck? And he's continued that theme this week by pointing out a few things that the Ministry for Ethnic Communities has done in recent times. He's done it rather facetiously, of course. Anyway, the Ministry for Ethnic Communities have held 27 hui to develop strategic priorities. They've developed an action plan after targeted engagement. They've handed out taxpayer money through a fund. They've put people on committees and they have developed the ministry's values. Wow. Seems like a significant list of achievements. Not. David Seymour has a question for the Minister of Ethnic Communities. He says, are the lives of people in ethnic communities better because the ministry exists? If the answer is no, he says, then why does the ministry exist? Now, I tried to find out how much this ministry costs each year. I couldn't. It will be buried deep in the budget documents somewhere. It won't be a heck of a lot, maybe $10 million. That's just a guess. Then there's the Ministry for Women's Affairs, the Ministry for Pacific Peoples, and the Ministry for Maori Development. Act wants to get rid of them all. The logic, frankly, is impeccable from David Seymour. Why have ministries that deal only with some people in New Zealand and not with all of us? He reckons government spending will be reduced without cutting frontline services because public services will be based on need instead of racial or gender targeting. And I find that very hard to argue with. And Seymour intends to drive a hard bargain uh, with the Nats if they want him as a coalition partner. Seymour is what I like, a politician with some conviction. And there are not many of them around in this country at the moment. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Gee, this primary teaching lark seems to be getting better and better the longer it goes on. The teachers have voted for a decent pay rise and a whole lot more time out of the classroom with a lump sum and a special top-up just for being a member of the union. That last bit to me is quite staggering. If that's not discrimination against one particular group of workers, I don't know what is. It works out as about three years' worth of union fees for an experienced teacher. It's 1500 bucks, about $500 a year for union fees. So those who haven't been part of the union for more than three years will be ahead, but it's still a discriminatory payment. The new pay scale means that come next year, you will be paid $100,000 a year after eight years in the job. That is, by about the age of 30. Not bad going, eh? And you'll be getting one day a fortnight out of the classroom for whatever administration work you need to do. And you're on holiday for a quarter of the calendar year as well. So the end deal is that teachers will be paid more, 11% over two years for most teachers and much more for those starting out on the job, while spending less time in front of students. Will that improve our numeracy and literacy standards across the country? I would doubt it. Yes, the teachers have won. 
But I don't think the nation's children have, though. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. How can we stop this outrageous explosion in retail crime across the country, as reported by the supermarkets a couple of days ago? The headline number was just appalling, wasn't it? A 38% increase in crime between February and April of this year. 3,285 incidents in supermarkets in that time across the country. We can go tut-tut, all we like, but you know it's not going to get any better until supermarkets are designed and built to make them much harder to get in and out of. Yes, it's come to this. It might sound extreme, but don't we need solid glass doors at the entrance and exit to all supermarkets so that you can't get in unless you're approved by the security guards on the gate and you can't get out unless your checkout receipt can release the lock and open the door. I mean, it sounds draconian, it sounds outrageous, it sounds like a bank. It's expensive and it's over the top. But if we have crime continuing to increase at the rate it has in the early stages of this year, supermarkets will just become impossible to operate safely. What's worse is that some of the tools available to supermarket operators, like facial recognition cameras, have been deemed to be a breach of privacy by the Privacy Commission already and currently can't be used. Surely that ruling has got to change. The police and government have got to take some responsibility for this, of course. This soft-on-crime approach and the lack of police visibility on our streets and around our shops just makes the crooks more brazen than ever. The community has had enough of crime, especially these outrageous daylight robberies through ram raids and at the supermarkets. The country's leaders have got to take a stand and say this is not acceptable. And then they have to back up the words with action, like getting the boys in blue back on the streets. Now, there is this small settlement halfway between Napier and Hastings, which has a river running through it. Uh, That river, until a couple of days ago, carried the same name as the town, the Clive River. You drive over the bridge from Napier on your way south, you turn right on the way down to Hastings and Havelock North. The town and the river are named after that rather infamous figure of Indian colonial history, Robert Clive, otherwise known as Clive of India. He never actually made it to New Zealand, uh, mainly because he died in 1774 when James Cook was still having a look around in the Pacific and, um, and discovering us for Britain. What we now know is that the Clive River is no more. It is Te'awa or Mokotua Raro. But here's a remarkable thing. The Clive River is actually quite new physically because it was only formed after some flood protection work in 1969. It's just over 30 kilometres long, but on its journey from the Pekapeka Regional Park to the sea, it has, according to Google Maps, four names. It starts life as the Pokawa Stream, then it joins the Awanui Stream, which winds around to join the Karamu Stream near Havelock North, which then flows into what was the Clive, and now the Mokotuararo. It's all rather complicated, isn't it? But it makes you wonder why yet another name was needed for the final run to the sea when all those other names already existed. But here's the acid test. As time goes on, What will this river be called? How much longer will the Clive River moniker stick? Or will the KISS principle prevail? As in, keep it simple, stupid. You need to make a special effort to say Mokotuararo. 
I suspect in the minds and mouths of many, it's going to be the Clive River for a while yet. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now, Victoria, South Australia, Western Australia, Tasmania and the Northern Territory have already done it. It's happening in New South Wales later this year. It is time for New Zealand to do it too. Make it a nationwide policy. No phones at schools. End of story. Nada. Straightforward. Hard and fast rule. And stand back and watch academic achievement increase and violence decrease. Why do kids need phones at school? The answer is they don't. Children were educated satisfactorily, some say to a much higher standard, before the mobile phone era began, what was it, 25 years ago? And things have really only become chronic since the smartphones of the last 15 years with their video cameras have become so much more prevalent. That footage of an 11-year-old girl getting smashed up at Napier Intermediate only so the video could be taken and then posted on social media was a disgrace. But it's not untypical. Police are on track, apparently, to be called to schools for violent incidents a thousand times this year. It's absolutely out of hand. Ban the phones on school grounds and confiscate those inside the gate with no return for a week and see how things improve. Yes, there will be an outcry from the kids, probably an even bigger outcry from the parents. Too bad. There are some things happening in New Zealand that are not pleasant, but they can be improved if some lawmakers have courage to take a stand. If it can be done in Australia, we can do it here too. Now, I have to say I love the way that Nobby Clark rolls. The mayor of Invercargill has that ability to just cut through the crap and tell it as it is. So at a public meeting in his town the other night, he has a pop at the media about their reporting on Maori and iwi issues, claiming the government, quote, controls the media through the conditions of the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Now, that fund, I think, is pretty much wound up, or it's going to be wound up this year, but it has doled out $55 million to various media organisations with conditions attached. One of them was that recipients would actively promote the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi. Anyway, the Otago Daily Times is obviously a bit wound up by Nobby Clark's comments, so they called up a university lecturer named Olivier Dutel and got him to say that Nobby Clark's comments were ignorant and that a government funding agency did not control what a journalist chose to write. Hmm. I think Dr. Olivier Dutel is the ignorant one here. A quick look at his bio on the Otago University website marks him as yet another academic lefty. His work is described as being concerned with the emergence of right-wing populism. In other words, he doesn't like democracy, which after all is what populism is. But back to his comments on Nobby Clark. Nobby is dead right. There were conditions for what journalists wrote under that public interest journalism fund. Therefore, the government could control the media on the issue of iwi and Māori. The ODT should have had more courage than to wheel out a lefty and actually answered the charge themselves. After all, they're the frontline media and they know the rules that they took the money under. 
So we're all set for the Super Rugby quarterfinals this weekend. And with the exception of one match, I think the outcomes are pretty certain, aren't they? I mean, the Blues are going to whip the Waratahs in Auckland tonight. The Chiefs will trash the Reds. The Crusaders will hammer the Drua in Christchurch. That means the Hurricanes and the Brumbies is the hardish one to pick, but I fear the Brumbies will be too good at home. But there's a fascinating piece about the future scheduling of top-level rugby in our part of the world in the Herald this morning. The key is that because the South Africans and Argentinians have effectively become Northern Hemisphere players, as that's where they play their club rugby these days from September through until April, sometimes into May, uh, they don't get enough time off to play Southern Hemisphere international matches in June, July and August. So there's a suggestion going around that we do in the Southern Hemisphere, what we do in the Southern Hemisphere is reverse things and play the test matches at the start of the year, earlier in the year, in March and April. Then the Super Rugby is on in the late winter and the spring. It all sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? And the idea of making rugby play the same seasonal schedule all around the world is one that has been talked about for years and nothing's ever really come of it. Maybe nothing will come of this idea either, except that South Africa, who still wield a great deal of clout, are pretty keen on the idea and will have test matches in the late summer. In the meantime, though, we will enjoy some midwinter quarterfinals in Super Rugby this weekend and look forward to this year's Rugby Championship in July with the big Bledisloe Cup match in Dunedin uh, the first weekend of August. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Uh, thank you for your company this afternoon here on RCR. If you've got any comments on anything that uh, has been on this afternoon's show, my address is inbox at realitycheck.radio. My text, 2057. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts 1pm Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now.